You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. The text for this morning's sermon is Mark 10, 1 through 12. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and the crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, would you give us much grace this morning? It is our commitment. Uh, to teach through the entire Word of God. So there are times when we come upon texts that are heavy. They are weighty texts. What they deal with are serious matters. And so while we always need your grace when we open your Word, I'm feeling a particular need this morning. Would you keep us, Holy Spirit, from any misunderstandings? Would you guide my speech? Pray that it would be accurate, that it would be tethered to the Word of God, and that it would be gracious in every way. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Contrary to what we so often hear reported, quote, social science tells us that when it comes to predicting overall happiness, a good marriage is far more important than how much education you get, how much money you make, how often you have sex, and yes, even how satisfied you are with your work. Unquote. This is just one of the key claims I've encountered in a new book I'm reading by University of Virginia sociology professor Brad Wilcox. The name of the book is Get Married, Why Americans Must Defy the Elites, Forge Strong Families, and Save Civilization. Here's something else I found insightful but also alarming. Wilcox writes, 
It's no accident that today's young adults are leaning out from marriage. Parents, peers, and pop culture encourage them to put love and marriage on the back burner. In fact, a recent Pew poll found that 88% of parents believe that it is important for their kids to be financially independent, and the same share think it important that their kids have careers they enjoy when they are adults. Only 21% said it is important their kids get married. And only 20% believed it to be important that their kids have children of their own. The legacy of the divorce revolution of the 1970s has also made plenty of young adults gun-shy about marriage. Wilcox continues. These young people, without knowing it, have soaked up a set of pervasive modern assumptions about the purpose of life. Many have bought into the belief that anything good about marriage comes with various unpleasant side effects. Boredom, foregone job opportunities, the burdens of parenthood, oppressive gender roles, and generally being tied down. Now, Dr. Wilcox does not set out in this book to make a theological case for getting married. But he does want to prove through academic research that the cultural narrative about marriage is just plain false. While Wilcox never says this, his research proves what committed Christians already know. God's design for marriage is good. And as a gift of his grace, it is something to be pursued celebrated and treasured. Now, I fully understand that in a room this size, what I've just articulated about marriage is going to land very differently on various groups of people. I'm thinking of at least six separate groups. I plan to address each group specifically as I close this morning. But in the meantime, please, friends, don't tune me out. This is the breathed out word of God, and it is profitable even if it is sometimes painful. Perhaps those of you who read this text before today in preparation for our time together, you might be wondering, uh, why are you talking so much about God's good design for marriage when the text in front of us seems to be focused on broken marriages, those ending in divorce? Well, here's my answer. In this conversation about divorce, the one we find in Mark chapter 10, Jesus takes it as an opportunity to clearly explain the divine design for marriage. Yes, he addresses divorce and even remarriage, but the bulk of what he says relates to the triune God's good design for marriage. Therefore, I plan to do what Jesus does. I think there are three natural divisions in verses 1 through 12. First, there is a disagreement about divorce. A disagreement about divorce. Second, there is a clarification about marriage. Third, 
there is a warning about remarriage. So first, look with me at verses 1 through 5, where we find a disagreement about divorce. Look at the text again with me. Verse 1. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. Nothing strange here. This is been the pattern for some time now. Word about Jesus has been spreading quickly. So when he arrives at a new place, people are waiting for him. They're all gathered for a variety of different reasons. Some are true believers. Some are merely fascinated by his teaching. Some are just curious. And some seem to only want something from him. Of course, there's another group that's looking for Jesus. It's the Pharisees the religious elite of the day. They were legalists and didn't like anything they heard from Jesus or about Jesus. In every way, they were the opponents of Jesus. And this is crystal clear in the way they tried to discredit him. This is what happens in verse two. The Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. If you've been with us throughout our study of Mark's gospel, this kind of interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees shouldn't be surprising. Uh, Notice the word Mark uses to describe the motive behind the Pharisees' question. They came up in order to test him. Mark actually uses that verb test four times throughout his gospel record. Three of them are in reference to situations similar to this one with the Pharisees. But the first use is all the way back in chapter 1 and verse 13. Do you remember what took place there? Satan tested Jesus in the wilderness. Friends, the Pharisees, with all the appearance of religious passion and fervor in their pride, they are playing a satanic role. In fact, the parallels between Mark 1 and Mark 10 don't stop with the same verb being used, but the nature of the attack is the same as well. In both cases, Scripture itself is being mishandled, intentionally twisted to serve ungodly purposes. This is a good reminder, brothers and sisters, that the tactics of the evil one, while they are many, will usually call into question the authority of God's word. In fact, the devil can do the most damage when he twists the word of God and tempts you and me to misunderstand and misapply the word of God to serve ungodly purposes. So in the text, we should at least at this point see a beware lest this happen to us sign. Here's the particular trap the Pharisees were trying to lay for Jesus. 
There was an ongoing and intense debate within the religious community about the teaching of Moses regarding divorce. There were two primary camps, each aligning with a different rabbi. The debate centered on what we find in Deuteronomy chapter 24. In fact, take your Bible and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 24. And look with me at verses 1 through 4a. Here's what the text says. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or... If the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. Now, we won't cover everything that's said there. The real nucleus of the debate was what Moses meant when he referred to indecency in the wife. Because whatever Moses is talking about, it's serious enough that a failure to follow his instruction, he calls an abomination before the Lord. Now, here's what happened over time. As I mentioned before, two primary camps had formed. And just for fun, let's call them conservatives and liberals. After all, as R.C. Sproul reminds us, there are always conservatives and liberals when it comes to interpreting the word of God. The conservatives taught this. What Moses had in view was a blatant act of sexual infidelity. This was the only permissible reason for divorce. The liberals taught this. What Moses had in view when he used that term indecency or more literally, uncleanness, is far broader than sexual infidelity. One commentator writes about this group of liberals. They claim that indecency referred to anything a woman did that embarrassed, disgraced, or merely displeased her husband. This included the grievous error of burning his toast. Thus, they permitted divorce on virtually any ground. The Pharisees wanted to trap Jesus by forcing him to choose a side. And whatever side he would choose, they had a plan to use that against him. He would either dismiss the law of Moses or go against public opinion. Either way, in their minds, they would have him trapped. So after pointing them back, to the authority of Scripture, knowing they've mishandled the law of Moses. How does Jesus respond in verse 5? And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. 
Here's what I believe Jesus is doing with this answer. He's confronting the Pharisees in at least two different ways. First, he's confronting their shallow understanding of God's law. He's pushing them past the technicalities of the law to the reason the law existed. The law existed because of sin. God's law permitted divorce because everyone entering into the covenant of marriage is a sinner. And if one of these sinners is drawn away and engages in sexual infidelity, the law of God allows for divorce. And this is really a means of compassion and kindness to the one being sinned against. The law is there because of the sinfulness of our hearts. D.A. Carson explains, for Jesus, human rebellion against God lies at the heart of all abuse of one's spouse. Without that rebellion, there would be no need for the abused party to seek protection through a legally valid divorce. Second, I think Jesus' confrontation of the Pharisees is even more pointed. It's as if Jesus looks these men right in the eyes and says this. The law of God allows for divorce because there are times when the heart of a husband or a wife begins to operate just like yours. It becomes hardened by the deceitfulness of sin and callous by spiritual arrogance. And in these moments, they, just like you, will look for any justification they can find to do whatever they want to do. You see, friends, in this showdown between Jesus and the Pharisees, Jesus upholds the authority of Scripture and exposes sin as that which ravages and destroys marriages. In other words, and we all need to hear this, it is not things outside of us that cause the most damage in our marriages. It is what's inside of us. What James refers to as the passions that are at war within us. We all have a unique ability to blame all of our marital problems on circumstances outside of our control and other people. Most often, our spouse. Have you ever caught yourself saying something like, he or she makes me so angry well, the implication here is that your spouse acted in such a way that you had no choice. You had no choice but to respond in anger. But here's the reality. Your spouse may have provided you with a great opportunity to lose your temper. But they did not make you do anything. Your anger was the fruit of the passions that are at war within you. Again, 
Jesus is masterfully pushing the Pharisees past the technicalities of the law to a more foundational problem. We all have sinful hearts that desire and do not have, that covet and do not obtain, so we're willing to sin to get what we really want. And in this case, the case that Moses is addressing, the fruit of that particular sinful temptation is sexual infidelity. So on the heels of the Pharisees' failed attempt to ensnare Jesus, he offers a clarification about marriage. A clarification about marriage. We find this in verses 6 through 9. One commentator offers us this bridge between verses 1 through 5 and verses 6 through 9. It's a little bit like Jesus is saying, do not look merely at what Moses allowed, but go all the way back to what God designed. Look at verse 6. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. This is what I meant when I told you that the heart of this text and the bulk of Jesus' response to the Pharisees focuses on the triune God's good design for marriage. While Jesus admits the reality of brokenness and sin, and that is a undeniable reality of life. He is quick to celebrate the goodness of marriage. It's all laid out so simply and beautifully in verses six through nine. So let's just walk through it. And, and just one side note before we do, committing this text to memory and parents teaching it to your children, this will give everyone a framework to immediately dismiss the vast majority of sexual confusion that abounds in our culture. Every believer needs to stay tethered to this text. So let's break it down into four statements. Statement number one, verse six. From the beginning of creation, God made male and female. Jesus begins at the very beginning. Marriage is not man's idea. It is no social construct to be embraced or discarded based on personal feelings or popular opinions. Marriage was first instituted by God in the order of creation, given by God as an unchangeable foundation for human life. Foundational to this institution of God is the creation of man and woman, both in his image and after his likeness. Notice, friends, that marriage in any true and meaningful sense is between one man and one woman. There is no other option. Again, the definition of marriage is determined by the one who created it. 
A government cannot redefine marriage as something other than what God has determined it will be. To attempt to do so is the height of arrogance and is sinful to its very core. According to God's good design, marriage is between one man and one woman. From the beginning of creation, God made male and female. Statement number two, verse seven. A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. According to God's good design, when a man and a woman enter into the covenant of marriage, they are creating something wonderfully new. John MacArthur helpfully writes, marriage as God has always intended it to be involves the total commitment and consecration of husbands and wives to each other and to him as the divine author of their union and witness to their covenant. In our culture of disposable relationships, we need to hear this call again and again and again. It's a call to responsibility and intentionality in our marriage relationships. It's a call to Christ-like commitment and sacrificial love. A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. Statement number three, verse eight. The two shall become one flesh so that they are no longer two, but one flesh. God's good design for one man and one woman entering into the covenant of marriage together is that they might become one flesh. Again, this goes all the way back to Genesis 2.24. Now, to be clear, there can be no oneness apart from a male and a female partner who complement one another at every point. While this oneness certainly includes sexual union, the idea goes beyond merely this. It actually includes the whole person. One author says it this way, male and female marriage partners not only make an exact fit sexually, but their maleness and femaleness fill out or complete one another in every respect. The two are now considered one. God's good design for marriage is to richly enhance your life through the gift of a one flesh union with a spouse whom God has chosen to complement and complete you. Statement number four, verse nine. What God has joined together let not man separate. When a man and a woman enter into the covenant of marriage together and they become one flesh, this is not simply the result of their decision to marry. The greater reality is that God has joined them together. The design of marriage is established by God. The purpose of marriage is defined 
by God, and the permanence of marriage is commanded by God. The Reformed theologian John Murray wrote, marriage is grounded in this male and female constitution. As to its nature, it implies that the man and the woman are united in one flesh. As to its sanction, it is divine. As to its continuance, it is permanent. The, important, the import of all this, the import of all this is that marriage from its very nature and from the divine institution by which it is constituted is ideally inseparable. In other words, married brothers and sisters, guard your hearts. Be aware of the attacks of the evil one. Avail yourself of every means of grace available. Ruthlessly fight against sin and temptation. Do everything you can to make sure that what God has sovereignly joined together, no one and nothing ever tears apart. Do you see from these four verses how God's design for marriage is good? how it's ideal for human flourishing. When one man and one woman are faithfully married for life, it is a glorious thing to behold. In fact, it is the greatest human picture we have of the love that Christ has for his church. Marriages bear a unique ability to either clarify or confuse the gospel. This is why the devil works so feverishly to destroy Christian marriages. This is why we need each other, brothers and sisters. In his response to the Pharisees, Jesus has given us a sort of infallible roadmap for marriage. On more than one occasion, I've been in the car with my dad when he has his GPS going. And he'll have it going even though he knows exactly where he set it. On a few occasions, I've, I've even asked him as he follows his phone's instructions and drives past his destination or turns a direction he knows is wrong, say something like, why didn't you just turn there? His response is that the GPS told him to do something different. Acting as if it cannot be wrong, even if we both know it is. Friends, we need to follow the teaching of Jesus in Mark chapter 10, verses 6 through 9, like my dad follows his GPS. Don't ask questions. Don't doubt the instructions. Just obey every single word. A disagreement about divorce, a clarification about marriage, finally, a warning about remarriage. A warning about remarriage. We find this in verses 10 through 12. As we've seen before, the disciples' heads are spinning after hearing Jesus respond to the Pharisees. So when they're all alone again, they ask him a very specific question about divorce and remarriage. Look at verse 10. 
And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Against the backdrop of the Pharisees' low view of marriage and flippant view of divorce for almost any reason, Jesus speaks very directly to the disciples. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, we, we do want to interpret what Jesus says here with all of Scripture in view. So I would understand Scripture to allow for divorce in two specific instances. These are outlined in Matthew 19.9 and 1 Corinthians 7.15. In these cases where divorce is biblically permissible, I believe remarriage is also allowed. However, this is not what Jesus has in view with the disciples. He's specifically addressing cases of divorce that have no biblical warrant. In these cases, to remarry is to commit adultery. One commentator explains, this is how seriously Jesus takes wrongful divorce and remarriage. He calls it adultery. Jesus presents divorce and remarriage here as an act of rebellion against God. It is the act of undoing a union that God made and then making a different union that God did not make. That is the main point. Don't tear apart what God has joined and don't join together what God has kept separate. Friends, do you see God's good design for marriage? Do you see how precious it is to the Lord Jesus? As I said when we began, God's Design for marriage is good. And as a gift of his grace, it is something to be pursued, celebrated, and treasured. Now, I mentioned that I had specific groups in mind as I was preparing this message. I want to acknowledge and encourage each of these groups as we draw our time to a close. There are six Group one, some of you have adopted the worldly mindset about marriage that Brad Wilcox addresses in his book, the book that I referred to in my introduction. If this is you, I hope your faulty thinking has been confronted by the infallible wisdom of God's word, especially as it relates to marriage. May your thinking May your thinking be more shaped by the one who created you than the culture that surrounds you. Group two. Some of you earnestly desire to be married. And for whatever reason, under God's providential hand, he has not yet given you a spouse. If this is you, I want to encourage you 
that what you desire is good. And even this week, I've been praying for you that God will grant you patience and joy as you wait on him. In your waiting, may you know and experience in a very special way the sufficiency of Christ. Group three, some of you are in a marriage that is unhealthy. And frankly, it hasn't felt like a good gift in a very long time. If this is you, my aim today has not been to deepen your discouragement, but to encourage you by presenting God's good design for marriage, while also acknowledging the ravaging effects of sin. Perhaps God will use this message to reorient someone's heart and mind to repent and pursue a biblically healthy marriage with renewed passion. Group four. If you realize this morning, or you've been reminded, that your past divorce was without biblical warrant, and you've since been remarried, and now you're wondering what to do, friend, here's my encouragement. Embrace the forgiveness for past sin that is yours in Jesus Christ. Love your present spouse like Christ loves the church and daily bask in God's amazing grace for you. Group five. Some of you are presently doing this or you have in the past walked through a very painful divorce. Even though you've been reminded this morning that your divorce is or was biblically permissible, even so, the evil one may, in the hours and days ahead, tempt you toward deep feelings of shame and guilt. If this is you, I pray that your heart will find great comfort in this. When the vile accuser speaks against you, your resurrected Savior will answer for you. So find rest in Jesus. Group six, many of you, as a result of God's exceeding kindness, are presently enjoying a healthy and vibrant marriage. I want you to leave this morning freshly amazed at God's goodness to you. And I want you to leave more motivated than ever to guard your marriage, to cultivate your marriage, and to treasure your marriage as a good gift from God. I suppose in, in short, here's what I'm saying. Whoever you are and wherever you find yourself, Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus, the one who forgives, heals, provides, restores, and makes new. He is the hope of every person, and he is the hope of every marriage.
Let's pray.